it's Simon, and it's great to be back with an autumn, or for my listeners across the pond, fall season of Turning the Tables. And what a powerful episode I have for you. One billion people around the world live with some form of disability, which is about 15% of the global population, making it the world's largest minority group. My guest Viola Dyer was born with spinal muscular atrophy, a rare genetic condition that she shared with one of her sisters from birth. The condition has presented enormous challenges for Viola and her family. Viola's story is one of tremendous courage and shines a light on how unequally disability is still treated in our society. Not only has Viola had to deal with the challenges of her condition, but she has also had to overcome a number of further traumatic experiences in her life, including the recent loss of her sister and soulmate to the condition, the imprisonment and subsequent death of her physician father, and the continued struggle to find meaningful work and fund 24-7 care. Despite these challenges, Fiola has found joy in her partnership with her husband, Dan, and the determination to take on the cause of disability awareness through her YouTube channel, The Ginchiest. By the way, The Ginchiest, in kooky speak, means anything desirable. So let's get into our conversation. I started by asking Fiola about her childhood and the origins of her condition. Welcome to Turning the Tables, Viola. It's great to have you on board. I'm sure this will be a fascinating story. So thank you for coming on and being my guest. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, for sure. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Tell us really about how your life's evolved and how you've got to where you are today. Well, I suppose that I do have a disability story because there's an episode that we recently had on our channel about acquired versus disability at birth. And I have a disability from birth, and it's a type of muscular dystrophy called spinal muscular atrophy. And in order for this to be present in a person, both parents had to be carriers. And my family, my parents knew this uh, from a pretty early point in time, even though the disease itself wasn't officially named and known to the level it is today until much later in, in our lives. Um, my, I am one of three children or daughters, and my middle sister had it too. So she, she was born first, and she was affected more so in that her, her muscle weakness and progression was more pronounced, and she often would get sick uh, in the hospital with pneumonia or some sort of bronchitis. And so I think that from a very early age, I was aware of this, this heaviness around these events that, that, you know, because my parents decided to have children, even though my oldest sister, she's completely not affected. Um, and, and to give you some context, this disease is uh, autosomal recessive. So that means that it's a 25% chance 
that you have a child affected with it. Um, and so there was actually the odds were in our favor not to, to have it. But, um, you know, for my oldest sister who wasn't affected, she, she also isn't a carrier, which is rather rare. So that, I believe it's also 25% chance. So it's like we, I joke. Um, and I've never really formally told her this, but she won the genetic lottery, um, my oldest sister. But, uh, but I think that when we grew up, there, my, my father was a physician. My mother, she, she stayed at home with us, and um, she cared for my sister and I, and, of course, you know, all, all of her children. But we needed um, more care as we grew older. Um, and sustained care how did that impact you in terms of you know your schooling and and just growing up as a young woman well i was very fortunate in some respects because again the way that this disease affected me was very different from my sister and you know my sister was older by five years and so and a lot of which what she had done and what my parents decided for her passed on to me. Mm. So she attended a school for kids, children with physical and mental disabilities. And I followed suit uh, when it came time to start kindergarten. But in, in terms of my ability to go out and play and wheel myself around. I was a manual wheelchair for a while before I transitioned to a power wheelchair. It was uh, greater than hers. And so I was outside a lot. I was playing a lot. And, and I don't think that I really registered well that, that this was permanent. <laughs> I had this. Um, and then when I went to the school, it, it was like I really think back on it with tremendous gratitude because it allowed me to see this full spectrum of humanity and it exposed me from a very early age some tremendous lessons that I still carry with me. But one of my best friends, and I'm still really close friends with her, um, she and I at the school believed that when we would grow up, all of this our disability would, would go away and we would be like the adult teachers, you know, no, no disability, no need for crutches or wheelchairs. And I think that's really fascinating how mm. a kid copes and processes. I mean, was there a moment when it became evident to you that that wasn't going to be the case? There wasn't a singular moment, no. I think it was gradual, but I did leave this school because my parents realized that there were certain subjects and things that I apparently should be learning by a certain age, and I wasn't yet. Because the way that they had organized us at the school at the time is that they, they blended the classes with people who had... Um, mental disabilities and physical disabilities. So someone who wasn't even able to read yet would be, you know, right, right in the class with you at, in the fourth grade. 
And so they made the decision uh, after my fourth grade year to take me out. And I would go, I was transitioned to a mainstream school. So I was, I went from being in a pool of um, people like me to being very much singled out and unique uh, with the other kids uh, in my new school. As, as you reflect back on those years, what how how do you how do you look back on them? Well, the transition was very hard. I have to say that when, especially when I hit the teenage years, and topics of crushes and <laughs> <laughs> dating, dances, parties came up more and more. I felt more and more excluded and ignored. And I be- and I would say when I initially transitioned to school, I made a lot of friends and I thought things were going fairly well. But when we started to grow up, all of us, and enter into that uh, adolescent world, I, I, felt, I, I felt further and further uh, detached. And uh, I, w- I would say I was pretty depressed at, in high school. I, I didn't feel as though I fit in at all. And I think that's so common today, but I didn't have a lot of reference. There weren't other students or, or um, friends from my past life in that school that I was still keeping um, up with. Like there was a time where my, my best friend and I spoke of earlier, we didn't talk for a long time. And I, and I wish that we had kept up our friendship because I think we would have been a tremendous support to each other. I, I suppose it is a time when it must have, it must have really heightened the limitations of your situation, I guess. Yeah, and, and it, it really showcased to me what the world may may think of me. And once I leave this place, once I leave this school, was this really a representation of what the world thought of someone like myself? And it, and I have to admit, Simon, it wasn't a positive. Um, perception. I, I, I felt that beside a, a few teachers who were wonderful and I, and I really enjoyed their mentorship, I found the experience from both administration and other teachers to be wanting and, and that they were on one hand seeming to promote inclusivity and diversity, but in practice, it felt um, not the case. And I worried that, like, what is it going to be like when I go off to college? I mean, I remember talking to the college counselor and I said I wanted to go to Stanford. And he said, you know, absolutely not. There are all these bicycles and they ride around and they could be dangerous for you. And I'm like, what would that like? Why is it? And then, of course, he thought my, my grades weren't good enough. I was like, okay, whatever. But uh, um, <laughs> well, that's a normal conversation, of course, yeah, isn't it? Well, yeah. maybe your grades and the rest of it. But I mean, it was obviously you were a high achieving uh, student in any case. So I-, I guess that must have been incredibly frustrating. 
So when you made the sort of transition to university, where you went, how how was it in the end? There were still, I'll admit, I mean, it wasn't all rosy in the sense that there were still parts of my life that I felt perhaps was due to my disability that I wasn't fully included. So when it came to romantic interests that I had and me trying ever so subtly to make them known, um, they, they were never requited. It, it was, uh, you know, it was, I, I was often held at a distance. People easily could see me as a friend not as a romantic partner and that hurt it was difficult to 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 experience that um and this is very common very common among people with disabilities and uh and i think that goes back to people's perceptions of what is what is this experience like and how would it affect them if they were to to start this type of relationship with someone with a disability. How, how did you deal with that at the time? Did, did you have any coping strategies or thought processes? I think my sister really helped me, my middle sister. She, um, and I will say that my sister, you know, she, she was five years older than me, but, um, it always felt like she was kind of paving the way to what's next for me. And so we would have very, and I'm getting emotional because my sister passed away um, in 2019. Oh, and so, um, and uh, I relied on her. I think that the, those sorts of relational supports are, are paramount. I mean, they're, they're invaluable. And she and I, we would talk at length about the difficulties and our dreams about this, you know, who would we want to marry? What's the type of person that we would look for? And, uh, you know, well, what if we, if it's funny, because we didn't come up with a lot of tactics. It was a lot of uh, frustration and stuff, but she, I mean, Okay. To her credit, she was, I think, more bold than I was. Again, like I, I wasn't as direct in my uh, communication of, you know, I'm interested in you. Would you consider, you know, going out with me? Like I, I, I had a hard time with that. But she, I think, I would say she was a bit more direct than I was. And that was inspiring to me and motivating mm. to me. Yes, I can see how that was a uh, must have been a great support to you. Yeah. How was it then thinking about what you were going to do in, in in the outside world for a career? I think from a really young age, probably in high school, I realized when when I just took trips with other assistants um, who we wouldn't pay them. Um, for their time, we would just pay for all of the incidental costs of going on a trip. Um, but I realized that in order for this to be sustainable, I need to make a lot of money, Simon. So I, I thought, well, people make a lot of money in the stock market. Why don't I figure out what that's all about? And that's what I did. I thought, 
I was very motivated by money and motivated to climb the corporate ladder, if you will. And so I, I was able to start with um, Morgan Stanley as a financial advisor. And that was through a family connection who helped me have my applications kind of get the boost. I mean, I'm being totally honest because this is how I think in the real world still people get uh, opportunities. And, um, but this, this job was not glamorous. I mean, I made in my first year, $24,000. But what I really appreciated was I figured out the stock market. And and in so many words, in the sense that I had to take this series seven exam, series 63. And it allowed me to demystify all this financial speak. But I also realized it was kind of, uh, I wouldn't say a joke, but it, it's, it's a bit of, it's a game. And I, I was pretty quickly disenchanted by it. Um, I did make my quota because you had to generate a certain amount of assets under management in order to stay on in the financial advisor program. And I made that quota, but, uh, but I hate, I really hated the sales cycle, like the sales pitch and what, you know, our offerings were. And, uh, I, I didn't think that they best served the client at the time. Um, so I guess you've got that sort of tension between that need to earn money, but being in a in a business which, frankly, wasn't sustaining you emotionally or mentally. Yeah, and and I, I was, I mean, it made perfect sense, and I don't, and I, and I'm not regretful of the choices that I made because I was only looking out for myself and my family. And, uh, and then there was this personal situation that arose in my family. As I mentioned, my dad was a physician and he had a uh, private office or uh, private, private practice. And um, my, my dad was an older physician. He started practicing way later in his life. And I think looking back on what happened, it's obvious that he really wasn't aware of the shift in in medicine and pain management and prescribing pain medication because what ended up happening is that the the government, the federal government, thought that he, he was prescribing pain meds without medical reason and they saw a case against him and it escalated very quickly. And he was sentenced to prison. And so, um, you know, here I was out of MBA school with tremendous amounts of bills because I took on my family's, um, you know, home expenses. Um, they froze my, my parents' uh, retirement account. And, of course, the legal bills. I mean, there were lawyers. Huh. Uh, and so despite making all that money, it, it left me very quickly. How terrible. What a terrible yeah. situation. I know. It was, it was horrible. Um, and, and it was really the turning point. When he went away to prison, I thought, I can't possibly stay in this job. I can't do it. 
I need to be writing to senators. I need to be writing to the president of the United States. Like, I need to do all this work to get my dad back. And that's what I did. I quit my very lucrative job to help my family. And, um, but I, I, I think back a lot about this decision because it was a huge economic blow to me. Um, I had to get on what well, we're here in the U.S. Uh, we have as um, benefits as Social Security disability income. So I got on that. I, I, I wiped all my savings. And um, I, I was writing those letters. I started a, a change.org petition for my dad, which generated like 36,000 um, signers. It was very exciting. Um, but my dad passed away there in 2015, in June of 2015. So, again, like another thing where you think, bad, is it going to get, like, is it going to get any worse? Because I don't know if I can handle this. And I won't, I won't lie, or I, I'm not one to sugarcoat anything. And and I thought many times about just, I don't want to be here anymore. It's too painful to live. Uh, but I still had my sisters, my mother, and they were relying on me. And just around that time is when I met Dan, my current husband. It's funny how there's this confluence of, of tragedy and a bright light, you know, goodness. And so um, I kept going. And I was adrift for a long time. And I didn't know what was the next step. I, like, I, do I go back and I try to find another corporate job? How would I do that? Like, do I start my own business? I thought I could start my own business as a consultant. It's kind of like flailing my arms with that. And then, um, you know, Dan and, and our relationship progressed and we knew that we had something pretty special and uh, we, we got engaged and we got married shortly after my, my dad passed. And we thought, let's just live life and, and, you know, take the bull by its horns, as they say. And we moved to Phoenix, Arizona, because I, I have this obsession with the with the warmth and the hot weather and dan was a very good sport about it and we tried to find jobs out there we would go to career fairs and i i worked with a vocational rehabilitation specialist who was supposed to help me find employment um through what, what we have called the ticket to work program to try to get off of um, ssdi social security disability income there was no traction. I mean, there was a little bit. I was in the final interview um, stages with a bank in their HR department, and they went with one other uh, candidate. And I found out that she was younger, and likely, you know, uh, she was less experienced, but she was younger, and so they'll probably save a lot of money hiring her. And so, but uh, but other than that, that 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 progression. For Dan, because Dan also has a, a disability, he has a traumatic 
brain injury that it affects his physical movements and his speech. And did that happen? Was that at birth or, or is that something no, that happened? No, no, he was in an accident uh, when he was nine. He was riding his bike and uh, he was run down. So, yeah, he has the, the acquired disability experience. Uh, so we, we weren't able to find jobs out there. And without any jobs, we were going to quickly get to zero with our, with our savings. So we moved back to my mother's house. And that was, I think, a, a really big defeat um, for, for me. I don't know how, how much Dan felt it was a defeat, but for me it was a big um, defeat. Well, I suppose it changed that independence which you, yeah. you'd acquired by being away and sustaining yourself and, and in many ways sustaining the family. It was. I mean, it was so freeing to be there. I mean, we had our, you know, our own apartment for the first time. We had that privacy we yearned for. Um, we had, it was fairly accessible. Like, Phoenix is pretty awesome in that regard. We even found a good flow of personal care assistance through the Arizona State University system. I mean, it was pretty good, all except the job situation. So when we came back, I started working part-time as a, as a tutor for college kids. And this was through a classmate of mine from MBA school who started this company. And I have to admit, I mean, it was, it was, it, it really soothed me a bit because I felt like, okay, I feel a little bit more anchored. I, I'm not so adrift anymore. I'm, I'm, giving back again, I'm making a little bit of money again. And it just, it helped me. Um, and I still do that work today because I'm not able to, to shift out of it. But um, when, when we were back, we were trying to figure out what our next steps were. In October 2019, I got ill first. I had some sort of virus and... Uh, and it caused an upper respiratory tract infection. And a few days later, my middle sister got ill. And um, she, she didn't have all the same symptoms as I did. She didn't have a high fever. But um, her respiratory function was, was really starting to become compromised. And um, it, it got to the point where she just needed to get medical attention. And, um, and she went to the local hospital and, you know, that night uh, they had given her some medication to lower her heart rate. And she became, she fell unconscious and they had to intubate her. And my, um, my mom forgot her, her wishes, which is no intubation. She does not want, she didn't want that. Um, and so when she woke up with, with a, a ventilator, uh, she was very mad at my mom. And she stayed in the hospital. It eventually progressed because she wasn't getting off the ventilator. So they had to put a trach in her tracheostomy, which was another thing that she was very adamant about ever wanting. She didn't want to live like that. Those were her wishes. She didn't want that. I don't know. You know, I've, I've, I've thought about this over and over again. Would I want that? Would, would that be okay with me? I don't know the answer to that yet. 
but for her, she didn't want that. And so she stayed in the hospital for um, about almost two months. And then one morning, she, they said that she died of a heart attack. And uh, I don't really know exactly how she died, but uh, I did go and see her like uh, once before she died. And then again, when she was already passed, I went up before she died. I, um, she had already been tricked and uh, I told her, you know, everything's going to be okay. And I meant it because I thought even in death, you know, that will be okay. If, if you decide to, to die, that's okay. And so when nothing could prepare me for when I saw her dead, just to see someone who you've loved for all your life and who was so full of life because that's what she was. I, there's, it's very hard to put into words the level of emotion that comes over you. Can't imagine. Very difficult. Yeah. And in many ways, I can see how all of the things that happened to you made that moment even more manifestly tragic for you. No, no, you know, it's funny because I can't afford therapy right now, Simon, so you're doing me a favor. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Some people do say that, actually. Because she was your connection, wasn't she? I'm listening to what you, you said earlier. She was, she was in a way a kind of lifeline, wasn't she? Because she was, as you said, went through the same things as, as you. Yeah, I mean, she was my guide in a world that wasn't made for us. And I felt that acutely. And she was, you know, she was very motherly towards me. And I deeply appreciated that type of love that she that she gave me, and I and it's unfathomable that I have to spend the rest of my life without her. It's deeply painful, but uh, I I think that this this shows how you know in the world of disability, death is a constant companion. I know it sounds very depressing, but it's the truth, and. I, I think that if more people take the time to learn about disability and stop to uh, and stop disassociating themselves, because I think that that's something that is incredibly frustrating to me and part of why Dan and I started this YouTube channel, because we're, we're tired of of seeing people live their lives in these bubbles. How, how has it affected, I mean, obviously you, you've made the point about, you know, perhaps you had a, a heightened sense of potential, but other than that, what other things has it, has it, has it made you become more aware of? Like it helps me come to terms with my mortality and it also helps me realize my humanity. It helps me realize my vulnerability it helps me realize how how we have such capacity for compassion and kindness, and those are the things that fill me up. It's taught me what fills 
what truly fills me up. I was looking, I thought, you know, I have to make this money, I have to do this corporate gig or this game. Doesn't fill me up. But those times I spent at that school, that 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 was my start of my journey. And now doing this YouTube channel, it fills me up because it teaches me, it reflects back my own humanity. And it can do the same for everyone else if they only choose to learn and listen. And that's what, what we're trying to inspire people to do and motivate people to do. Let's come on and talk, to, talk about a YouTube channel in a second. I suppose the question I'd like to ask you is if you had a message to the world about how people should integrate disability into their lives, what would you say? I would say uh, practice not seeing it as different or, or try to imagine what it would be like if you were in those in that situation. We say, I can never, I would never be able to be blind. I wouldn't, I don't know what I would do if I weren't able to, to run every day. And that's fair. You love doing those things. And that's not just, you know, I'm not trying to, to lay on guilt here. What I'm trying to, to invite people to do is challenge this assumption. You know, we are incredibly adaptive. We, we haven't survived over 200,000 years for nothing, people. Like, we know how to adapt. So do not discount your ability that if something were horrific to happen to you, you wouldn't figure out a way to move on with your life. And I'm not saying it's easy. No. But it's, it's like we hold these barriers, this, this divide Okay, I'm not disabled. They're disabled. I don't know what that's like. Well, try to figure it out. Imagine. Talk to people. Learn about it. Learn about other people's stories. Hear what their emotional journeys were. Because that's what they are. We're all on a journey. Everybody is trying to figure it out. Yeah, very powerful words. I mean, as you know, um, we have some experience of disability ourselves because our daughter is um, has disability, and I'll be very open. It's completely changed my outlook towards disability. And as you described, in a way, in the beginning, it was it was a fearful of the future of their lives, of losing them, and and those kind of feelings, but. What I've learned, I think, over the years is that actually there's tremendous joy in her life, and I, I'm sure everybody who has some disabilities life. She's not the same as anyone else, but she's absolutely unique and brings amazing, amazing values to us. And I think, so I'm trying to, I guess, reflect back what you're saying in a way is that if people just treat people openly as if they would anybody, there is so much to learn and so much humanity to gain from that outlook. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think that we, you and I have discussed this earlier about this concept of normal and as a society uh, across many different 
countries, we're obsessed with it. You know, oh, my body has to look this way. My face has to look that way. I have to have this type of life. It, it's a total illusion. If we were to drop you down into some remote part of Brazil, you, you try to exercise your normality there, you, you're going to be looked at like you're crazy. Yeah. What would you say fulfills you now? I would say creating something in the world that challenges these norms or causes people to think like I get a really big thrill out of that. Uh, and then, and then hearing from people who share that they've been changed in some way, that is my ultimate fulfillment. I chose and, and with Dan to not have kids and I think, you know, one way to leave a legacy would be this, is to cause some change in the world that's positive and good uh, to as many people as possible. And that, that fulfills me, to be the catalyst of that. Great message. And a, and a lovely way to finish, I think. Yes. Thank you, Simon, so much. Well, no, thank you. A, an amazing story and completely admire your, your courage and determination and all power to you I really do hope the YouTube channel goes on to very strong things oh thank you thank you same to your podcast your podcast is awesome fantastic all right I'm humbled to have been able to share Viola's emotional candid and sometimes raw story the challenges she faces daily put our struggles into perspective. And of course, she's not alone. When diversity and discrimination are a significant focus for our society, we need to do so much more to recognise, embrace and support all those people and their families affected by disability. I encourage you to seek out their YouTube channel the Ginchiest, subscribe and share this story far and wide. Until next time, go safely. <laughs>